It's been a really strange offseason. Vis-a-vis dogs running onto the field. You made it. We're not sabermetricians. That's all behind us now. Yeah, I got in trouble, but it was worth it. It was totally worth it. It was worth it. Totally worth it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flushing Transit Authority, the podcast that has been waiting for a September call-up and finally got one, only to find out we got called up to the Mets. <laughs> With me, as always, is Jay Bushman. Jay, how are you? I'm well, Will. How are you? I'm good. I should also add that I forgot to include my name. My name is Will Stegman, <laughs> the uh, permanent co-host. Um, At least that's what it says on the back of your jersey when it's not podcast co-host uh, weekend. Yes, yes. <laughs> when it, you know, we really do need that. Um, you know what? We are here once again to talk about the surprisingly good time New York Mets. Yeah, it's, you know, after a miserable middle of the year, the past uh, few weeks have been surprisingly enjoyable. Yes, they've been doing this thing where they are not losing every game. Yeah, and even the ones they're losing, they're in and, and they're playing enjoyable, watchable baseball. Right. You know, the um, the mantra for Flushing Transit Authority has always been that the goal of Major League Baseball is to play meaningful games in September. <laughs> now, we are not getting that. Nope. But what we are getting are some interesting games yes. in September. Um, the Mets have been very watchable. Um, it's amazing what sort of reconfiguring your expectations will do. Yeah, that's a you know that's a good way of looking at it. I was thinking about uh, did you watch last night's game against the Phillies? I watched most of it. I did. Um, and you know they lost, but I'm not too bothered by it because it was actually an interesting uh, game to watch, and they were in it for most of it. And the Phillies are a good team, and then they lost, and I'm like, eh, all right, whatever. If yeah. they were in, if they were in a, a pennant race, last night's game would have been agonizing. Sure. And now sure. it's like, okay, that was fun. Yeah, you know, as it stands now, it's like, oh, they faced Aaron Nola, who's the Cy Young candidate. Um, Fringe Cy Young candidate. He's in the top three uh, in the National League, and they played a, a decent game. Yeah. Um, the Mets were also in Los Angeles earlier this week. Um, traditionally, I make it to a game or two. Traditionally, we have made it to a game or yes. two. And we didn't this time. Yeah, I think life conspires sometimes to, to make the timing bad. And also, I mean, usually they come to L.A. in July or August. Yeah. They didn't come until September this year. My September is packed, so couldn't couldn't quite clear the schedule to make it. Yeah, it's same here. It's like, I was game time decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, you know, they were here on Labor Day. Yeah. And... Um, Jacob DeGrom was getting the start. Mm-hmm. I was off of work. Stars were aligned. There's no reason I should have missed this game. Um, and I did. Because you hit a point where you ask yourself, why am I pouring money into mm-hmm. this? And it, was, it wasn't even a matter of attention. Because I'll give the Mets my attention anytime. Mm-hmm. But I had a chance to either sit in my own backyard and listen to the broadcast start to finish on the radio mm-hmm. and or I could fight LA traffic on a holiday. <laughs> on a holiday. 
to Dodger Stadium and back. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the Mets, I probably would have paid for a not premium ticket, but a field level. Mm-hmm. Something in the, you know, once all your fees were said and done, something in the $70 to $80 range. Um, pair that with parking, concessions, gas. You know, I'm looking at spending hundred minimum $125 um, for the experience of seeing the Mets, um, you know, get Jacob DeGrom with no decision. As usual. So, it, um, I decided to stay in the backyard. Mm. I wish I could say that my decision was as considered. Um, I mainly didn't go because I moved apartments last week, and so there was just too much that needed to happen, and I just couldn't get away. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you're moving Mm -hmm. the, the Mets are here at the beginning part of the month when you've got all that moving stuff to do. Yeah. Um, it's just bad timing this That's year. Okay. The interesting thing was, though, I didn't miss it. Yeah. I didn't regret it. Um, I had an opportunity uh, to go to, you know, there were two more games. I could have gone to either one of them. Um, on Wednesday, Zach Wheeler was pitching. Mm-hmm. It was a weird 4 o'clock L.A. Yeah, start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was like, you know what? I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do other things. I would be willing to bet, however, that if the Mets were in a pennant race, sure, we would have found the time and the energy and the willingness to do it. Sure, and, you know, it, but it just goes to show that there is a breaking point yes. with with any team. There's a point where you say, you know what? I need to pull back. I need to do something for my own mental health. And you know, the reason that you know, we could sit and talk about the games that have happened this week. Mm-hmm. But at this point, talking about individual games is, it doesn't matter. Right. I'm more interested in, in player development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is Dominic Smith going to get some starts? Dom had a nice game last night. He did. He had a very nice game last night. He had actually a, a great defensive game yeah. as well. Um, I've continued to be impressed by the play of Jeff McNeil. I think Jeff McNeil is the, is the catalyst or one of the catalysts that has really changed the complexion of this team and made them more fun to watch. Right. I, I completely agree. And maybe it's just because it's a new face. Mm-hmm. Um, or that he just, you know, gets hits. Yes. That is. <laughs> he's hitting something like, I think the stat they said last night was he's got something like a 420-something batting average at, at City Field. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, small sample size. Small sample size, but I think it also goes to, and we talked about this last time, uh, roster construction. Right. But if you're if you're trying to get home run hitters that are consistently hitting 390-foot fly ball outs, maybe it makes sense to get someone like Jeff McNeil who hits line drive singles and doubles to the shallow outfield yeah. and take advantage of how your park is constructed. At least until the league learns how to defend mm-hmm. Jeff McNeil. Great um, shift. You know, yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, when you sort of look at numbers haven't been, because we don't have enough data on it yet, but how those shifts, you know, impact, uh, impact players and, you know, players who lose X amount of, you know, quote-unquote hits to the shift every year. Um, but it also reminds me of your comment about, you know, ballpark factors if you were watching last night's game in the ninth inning, Jay Bruce who had, Jay Bruce hit one about four hundred and five feet mm-hmm. to a fence that's four hundred and eight feet. Yes. 
Um, although it's nice to see Jay Bruce back in the lineup yes. and hitting yes. okay. I want to talk more about the whole breaking point and when yeah. you decide no more. But first, I want to have a side discussion. Sidebar. Sidebar. Um, as we look at the 2018 Mets, mm-hmm. um, how many players on in the current starting lineup do you think are set for a position opening day 2019? That's a hard one to call because we'll have a new front office. Yes. And so we don't know what their philosophies are going to be, what their aim is going to be. But putting that aside, um, Ahmed Rosario. That's the only one that I can think of. What position does he play? Um, One of the outfields. Well, that's the thing. It's like when you look at it, I see Ahmed Rosario at shortstop. Mm -hmm. And every other position is up for grabs. I mean, if, I mean, that assumes that Todd Frazier is tradable. Yep. Um, You know, I think at this point, it's, I think we've got something like nine potential first basemen Mm -hmm. on the roster. Um, But yeah, it's going to be an interesting, interesting offseason. Right. And the sooner they can get that new person at the at the helm, and they can have a, you know, a plan, the better. Although I will say, what I am not looking forward to is an off season full of all right. We've got a new GM. We've got a new president of baseball operations. Tell us everything you're going to do right now. Yes. Like no, that's not the job. Like sometimes you have to not show all your cards right, right away. You can say, hey, this is our organizational philosophy. Yeah. Here are some, here are the types of things we are targeting. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you get out there and say, like, hey, our our plan is to sign this player, trade for this player, right. it's not going to work. But as fans, we tend to be impatient. Um, you know, we can, we'll, we'll talk more about this when we move over to the next topic, but the idea of sort of winning the back pages, mm-hmm. becoming yeah. the driving narrative of the off season, or that's a very dated term now, yeah. winning the page view yeah. Um, yeah. battle. So it's interesting. And I, I don't know that there are very many players beyond Ahmed Rosario. Maybe you want to say that the job Jeff McNeil has done has given him the inside track on being your starting second baseman next Maybe, year. But I mean, like you said, small sample size and you know, I, I think they, as good as McNeil has been, I don't know if they're going to pencil him in as a starter. Right. Or maybe pencil is the right term. I mean, like, to, to continue what you were asking previously, you write Ahmed Rosario's name in shortstop in pen. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is written in pencil. And on the you know, start of spring training, you pencil in Jeff McNeil as your second baseman, yeah. and then you see what happens. You see what happens. You know, and then if I have my druthers... Dominic Smith is that first baseman. Yes. Your outfield is some combination. Take Cespedes out of the equation until right. further notice, mm-hmm. but it's some combination of Conforto. Nimo. Nimo. Juan Lagares. He'll be back Again. For, you know, before his annual injury. <laughs> uh, Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. Who knows who else? Who knows? Yeah. Um, also, let's uh, pour one out to the... Uh, Former Met, the lamented 
um, now Philadelphia Philly, uh, Joey Bats. Joey Bats. Jose Batista, you did a better job than I thought you would. Um, thanks for being a Met. I would not be surprised if Joey Bats was back next year. The thing that the best thing about having Batista on the team is he felt like he was filling that one year rebate role. Right. Of you know, played a few times a week, was pretty effective when he did, not always, but also he was just an older, more experienced guy right. to talk with the younger players and sort of, you know, show them how how a professional plays the game. And that's important. The you know the Mets organization said a lot of very nice things about him on the way out, mm-hmm. which is not something that the Mets organization is known to do. Yeah. And I do feel like the trade of Batista before the um, before the waiver deadline was kind of a hey look we're going to give you a chance to to yeah. latch on with a contender. Totally. Um, good for him, and I hope that he gets um, gets chance to make an impact there. Um, but really, at this point, the games themselves are just, let's tune in, let's hope for the best. Oh, as long as we're talking about, you know, impatient fan base and, you know, people being unrealistic and demanding, everyone just settle down about whether or not David Wright is going to play or not. Like, I'm starting to see over the past few days, like, conspiracy theories mm-hmm. yeah. about why they're not putting him in the game. You know, there were people holding signs last night, free David Wright, and it's like, calm the F down. Yeah. The team and the player and the staff will come together to make a decision, and why don't we trust them? Well, I mean, th- that is the actual core yes. of the question, is we don't trust them. It is, yeah. We don't trust the organization. In this case, I'm going to defer to David Wright. Yeah. And if David Wright was saying, I am ready to get on the field and play as a real player and not just a uh, you know, token, yeah. um, then he would be out there. Yeah. I, I say what you want about the organization, um, but I think that if he was ready to play, he'd be playing. Yeah, totally. Uh, totally. So... It is, it is to be seen. We've often described David Wright has resumed baseball activities <laughs> as the saddest sentence uttered in baseball, but uh, best of luck yeah. to I, David I mean, Wright. I think they will find a way to get him yes. back in the, in the lineup before the end of this season, and that'll be great, but people just chill out. Yeah, and I think what will happen is once before the end of the season, you're going to see David Wright at third base. Mm-hmm. Jose Reyes at short. Yeah. And... And that'll be nice. That'll be it. That'll be whatever... I, I think the organization sees that as a nice gesture to fans. I don't care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Jose Reyes. Who you does only he, have a couple of weeks left, Jose Reyes. I know, but I'm going to be unhappy about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, who does he have... Like, just... Mm-hmm. Is this some sort of charitable write-off by the organization? Hey, they have their guys, and maybe Jose's just, you know, maybe Fred has a thing for, you know, I don't know. Uh, I just, you know, a lot of, when you look at the number of at-bats that Jose Reyes has had this year, uh, it is one of the biggest waste of at-bats 
It is one of the most egregious examples of giving away outs mm -hmm. that I have seen in my history of being a Mets fan. And remember, Jason Bay was on this team <laughs> for a number of years. My apologies to Mr. Uh, Bay, who I constantly turn into a yeah. punching bag. Jason, it was not your fault. Yeah. No one blames you. Yeah. So let's get to sort of the, the topic at hand that we sure. started out earlier, which is when do you quit? Yeah, I mean, there are so many, uh, there's so, there's such anger in the fan base right now and, and for a while. And there's such a willingness to believe the worst out of the ownership, the, the front office, the team, this sense of they're lying to us. <laughs> right. Which is, uh, I mean, that's for another podcast, but that seems to be sort of the much, a much larger dynamic in our social fabric right now mm. is this sense of everyone is lying to us. And the only recourse that anyone has is to shout and scream about it online. Um, but... I find myself, and it's not to say that, you know, excuse incompetence or, you know, making mistakes, but at a certain point you have to accept that this is the team. These are the people who are the owners. This is the front office. They're professionals. And either you're just gonna sort of give them a shot or not. But at what point do you realize or that do you decide that the complaints are so much that you just have to leave they just right. have to walk away and you know there are stages of sort of saying i'm walking away yeah. for us we hit it this season some points over the last couple of weeks where we're like hey you know what i'm just not going to invest my emotions into this I've watched games, but I'm not emotionally involved in it. But I wouldn't call that walking away. I would call that sort of stepping back. Mm -hmm. But we're, all we're waiting for is an excuse to come back. Right. Right? I think the Mets as a franchise went through a moment where a lot of people left and never came back when they traded Tom Seaver. And... If they never came back, or maybe maybe it's not that they never came back, but there certainly were a lot of people who left for many years. And people who remained jaded. Yes. Like, that was the first heartbreak yes. of being a Mets fan. Um, you know, they had had tough losses, the 73 series, the death of Gil Hodges. These are all things that were hard. But trading Tom Seaver was the first time you realized that your organization doesn't owe you anything. Yeah. And that it's a business. So people like, you know, my dad's generation who were Mets fans from the start always felt like they had gotten hurt. Yeah. Because of the Seaver trade and then, you know, Seaver coming back and being and being lost again. Yeah. It yeah. was typical Mets. Yeah. And like I think there's a difference between falling out of love with a team. Right? Like, we've all had teams and sports and, and fan relationships with a thing where you're in a certain place at a certain time. Right. And you're, you're following something for a couple of years and then something changes. And you're like, eh, you know, it just sure. doesn't fit anymore. Like, I mean, I'll give you an example on, on mine. I've never been, never been a huge fan of American football. Um, which was hard growing up. Sure. In New York. Especially, yeah. It was like, 
you know, Jets, Giants, like every weekend. It was such a huge thing. And I tried for a while. And, but I, I just, neither of the New York teams ever really sort of appealed to me. And so right. at some point, I think I picked the Seattle Seahawks as a team. And I followed them for a couple of years, but never you're, really. You're Dave Craig. You're Steve yes, Largens. Yes. God, if I'd known about Steve Largens <laughs> at the time, I never would have. Right. But a few years later, I was in uh, grad school in uh, North Carolina the year that the Carolina Panthers came into being. And so for a couple of years, I followed the Carolina Panthers, and there was something really fun about being in a place where there was a new team. Yeah. And that was really, really cool. And so for two years, I followed the first two years of their existence, I followed the Carolina Panthers. But then... I left North Carolina. <laughs> right. I have never watched a Carolina Panthers game ever since. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you left North Carolina in the mid-90s at a point where the internet had not yet become what it is. You know, there were probably a couple of places where you could have gotten Panther yeah. news, but you had to seek it out. But I just didn't care. Yeah. And it was removed from the geographical situation. I just didn't really care. I mean, part of it is also uh, me and North Carolina were not the best fit in the world. And so when I left, it was sort of, let me leave all of that stuff behind me. Yes, Um, I get it. But yeah, it was just, you know, a time and a moment. And then that moment passed. But you contrast that with like our entire purpose for doing this podcast is where Mets fans who live in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. but we still seek it out. And right. Like there is a there is an intensity and a commitment to that relationship that would be much much harder to walk away from. Well, right. And the thing is, I I should have walked away from the Mets. <laughs> I complain about them all yeah. the time. Uh-huh. I don't trust the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I get annoyed by. Fans, even when those fans agree with me, I think that the pessimism, I just, it drives me crazy. Uh, Yes, but have they done anything? This, I think, is the interesting question. Like, what would it take? What would they have to do in order for you to walk away? Because you are one of the few people I know who have done that with another team and another franchise, which I I always found to be a, a highly laudable thing and and I don't know a lot of other people who have so determinedly said you know what no yeah. and I've been a lifelong fan of this team and I'm done right um yeah I did you know for many years I was in addition to being a diehard New York Mets fan was a New York Jets fan um just like my Mets fandom Jets fandom came from my dad mm. You know, my dad was 14 years old the year, um, you know, when you talk about like 68 and 69, you know, you always hear like, oh, the Jets won the Super Bowl in 69. Well, really, though, it was the 68 season. So my dad is like 13 and 14 years old when the Jets are winning the Super Bowl and then the Mets later win the World Series um, that October. Um, So that was just a thing that was just stamped into his brain. What's better than being, you know, a young, a young yeah. adult and you're not even a young adult, just a kid and seeing your team win. There's a feeling like it's always going to be this good. Mm-hmm. Um, he stuck with it. I, you know, inherited the fandom. And if you're not a Jets fan, I will sum it up 
this way, it's like take all of the things that the Mets do that make them uh, the lull Mets or make just make them the butt of jokes compared to other teams. And that's the Jets and more so. Mm-hmm. Like, the Jets have had one shining moment in now 57 years of being a franchise, and it's Joe Namath guaranteeing a victory in Super Bowl three, and then delivering on that promise. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, if you're a Jets much. fan, you don't have a whole lot to, um, to hang your hat on. Mm-hmm. You have a couple of close calls, and you have an organization that has done the Mets thing, which is always trying to win the battle of what we used to call the back pages, you know, which used to be, you know, back of the tabloids and is now trying to win the battle of page views during the offseason. But none of that is the thing that made me turn on the Jets because clearly I've been a Mets fan. I can handle incompetence. (laughs) I can handle losing. I can handle ineffectual ownership, poor management decisions, Mm -hmm. injuries, ticket prices. I could go on and on. I can go, you know, talk about both teams ad nauseum. What happened for me was I, several years ago, the Jets made a free agent signing. And they signed, um, at the time, former Atlanta Falcons quarterback, Michael Vick. Um, If you know me at all, you know that I feel very passionate about um, my dog and all dogs. And I felt especially, uh, I'm especially attached to pit bulls. Um, If you have met me in person, you may know that I have two giant pit bull tattoos. I feel passionate about the dogs. And I, like most people took great issue with the things that Michael Vick um, did. Now, people would say to me, but Michael Vick served his time, and he deserves an opportunity to earn a living. I completely agree with that. However, Michael Vick never pled guilty Mm -hmm. and never accepted blame for the dogfighting. Michael Vick pled guilty to racketeering, Mm -hmm. served time for racketeering, never took responsibility for what was done to those dogs. Mm -hmm. Now, I am not here to say that Michael Vick does not and did not deserve the opportunity to earn a living. Absolutely. He has a skill that very few people have, and if there's an organization willing to pay him for that, good for him. I'm a big believer when it comes to the NFL that players deserve every penny that they can get because that league does not respect or care about them. Michael Vick wants to earn money. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. Here's what I, what I can do, though. I can say the choice to sign Michael Vick does not reflect my values. Yeah. So I am going to walk away. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away from this team that I have been a fan of For at that point, I was, what, 38 years old? I had been a fan of for as long as I could remember. You know, 30-plus years of rooting for the Jets every Sunday, of, you know, passionately and intensely following them during the offseason, living and dying by games on Sunday. If the Jets lost a game on Sunday, my week was ruined. It was definitely a point in my life where the Jets were more important to me than the Mets were. Um, and you know how much I like the Mets. Uh Um, It was a big deal. 
and I had to walk away. Now, after that signing lived its lived itself out. I think Michael Vick was on the roster for two years, and in two years I didn't I didn't watch a game. Mm-hmm. Um, whether he was on the field or not, I just was I can't I can't sign off on this. Eventually, he left the team, and I thought, okay, new general manager, maybe I can give them a chance. And what I found was the culture that led to the Jets making that signing um, was was pervasive throughout the league in the sense that um, the league pays lip service to doing the right thing and being a part of the community. But the league doesn't care about that. The league doesn't care about players. Um, if you look at what the NFL has done with regards to um, trying to hide what playing football at this level does to bodies, um, look, football is a fun game. Like, I enjoy football. I like the players. Um, but I got to a point where I could no longer disregard what the game was doing. Um, and I could no longer disregard the fact that the league had gotten so big and the compromises that it had to make to continue to bring in the same amount of revenue um, means it's something that I could no longer abide by and no longer be a fan of. And it's not the only thing that I've made that decision on. You know, with football, not only did I bail on the Jets, but I bailed on the league as a whole. And I, I know you're not the only person who has like uh, the number of people over the last five, ten years who have just quit watching football altogether. When it becomes clear how players keep dying, mm-hmm. how I think I wonder if it was Junior Seau's suicide that was the the turning point for a lot of. I people. think for a lot of people that forced yeah. you to take a look at it. Yeah. Um, Look, football itself doesn't have to be so dangerous. Yeah. Um, I feel as if the NFL is so big that they're not capable of solving their own problems. And, you know, I mean, they've had a bad five years. (laughs) Yes. And then they decided recently in the past year with the Colin Kaepernick situation Mm -hmm. that Let's just set everything on fire, right? Um, and let's yeah. let's appease yeah. Donald Trump. Um, the fact that Colin Kaepernick has not taken an NFL snap yeah, it um, is, is it, it's so clearly collusion. Totally, and you know, it's one of those things people always talk about. You know, they look back in history, and everything is seems to be clear. And right? Think, oh, you know. If I were if I were around back then, I, I would have totally done something. Do this, or I'd believe this. This is exactly what they tried to do to Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And Muhammad Ali is now one of our most treasured, not just athletes, but Americans. Yes, he represents the you know the ideal of standing up yeah. for your beliefs and sacrificing. In this case, um, you know. Uh, the heavyweight title, yeah. In order to, um, in yeah. order to follow his, 
um, his beliefs and, and not be drafted into Vietnam because yeah. he was a conscientious objector. Um, we are going, you know, you, you look back at history and you think, what would I have done? Well, there are 32 NFL organizations who can look at this and say, what would I have done when there was some just blatant discrimination happening? And the answer is nothing. nothing. The answer is, no, we're going to pretend yeah. that the flag is a big deal. And look, mm-hmm. I am as patriotic as I need to be. Um, but the whole spectacle of the flag at the NFL is a paid advertisement. Yes. The Pentagon pays the NFL for those yeah. um, for those gigantic flag displays that players are not kneeling for. And if you're saying, hey, the players are kneeling because they don't respect the flag, then you don't understand what players are kneeling for. Yeah. And if you can look at this and genuinely say that you think this is a respect issue, I don't know what to tell you. I'm certain that anybody who knows me and is listening to this probably understands where I'm coming from. And if you don't, message me. We'll talk about it. But you know what you can't message me anymore? Twitter. Because I also quit using Twitter this week because there's another organization that's too big to fix its own problems. Twitter is, I mean, I've I've basically built a large portion of my career on Twitter. I know you through Twitter. And I've made great friendships and, and great connections on Twitter. But man, there is a company and there's an organization that they have no clue who their users are, what people use them for, and I, I, they just don't care. And, you know, I used to joke, and, and I don't think it's a joke anymore, that the best thing that could happen to Twitter would be to be nationalized. That they are too important and too powerful a platform to be a private profit making organization. Right. They should be a public utility. Well, they've they designed a system that they didn't understand the power of. Mm-hmm. Remember that the initial design of Twitter was supposed to be like a Slack type thing mm-hmm. where you can communicate with people on a team using small bursts of communication. Yeah. Well, unexpected benefit of this is that everybody wants to use it. Yep. Um, so there was ne- it was never built with any eye towards building safeguards. Yeah, and whatsoever. their business model um, discourages. Yeah, uh, because again, it's about eyeballs. It's about attention. So the only thing I can do when an organization no longer represents my values, and in the case of Twitter, giving a platform and amplifying the voices of people who I believe are awful. Um, I don't want to exist on the same platform. Yeah. So I walked away. Um, the I'm question... not quite there yet, but I have noticed that I have greatly decreased my usage of Twitter. Well, I feel like Twitter and the NFL, the only way to save them is to let them fail. Mm, yeah. And have someone rebuild it better. Yeah. Um, I think there's a better chance of Twitter doing that because, again, the secret also with Twitter is that Twitter doesn't make any money. Yeah, like, they don't. And they've been looking for ways to make money, which is how they changed a platform that was about connecting people to each other into a platform in which celebrities could broadcast to their quote-unquote audiences. Yes, because that's where their revenue comes yeah. in. Um, 
it is a it is a product whose actual use um, and business model don't support one another. So again, the only thing you can do if you want to fix Twitter, let it crash. So I think one of the one of the sort of themes that's tying together some of these um, different conversations is it's a question of roots, right? How deep are your roots with a team, with a platform, with a service, with a community? Mm. The deeper your roots, the harder it is to pull them up. Um, your roots with the Jets ran really, really, really deep. And for you to pull them up was a big deal. Yeah. Um, I still think, you know, I still think about it every Sunday during the yeah. season. I don't, um, I don't have anything that deep. I think the closest that come, that would, uh, would come to that in my, uh, in my background is I was never a huge basketball fan mm -hmm. growing up. Um, much in the same way that I heard stories when I was growing up of the Mets in the 60s and then the 69 World Series and the 73 World Series from my father, um, I also heard stories about the Knicks, the great Knicks teams of the 70s and um, uh, uh, Clyde Frazier and, and yeah. Phyllis Reed and Dave DeBusher and especially Bill Bradley. Right. Um, the intellectual. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, but growing up, uh, the Knicks never really appealed to me. I mean, the Knicks were bad for a really, really long time until I forget exactly what year it was. They won the lottery and they got Patrick Ewing. Mm -hmm. I remember that well. And at some point, I think it was probably when I moved back to New York after I left mm -hmm. um, North Carolina in the mid-90s. And the Knicks were really getting good again. And the Pat Riley era. That was a fun time. Followed by the Jeff Van Gundy era. And they were so watchable. And I, you know, and I, you know, when I was in North Carolina, I was still following the Mets, but it wasn't really close because I was far away. They were not good. Yeah. Uh, there were no teams you needed to in get North like Carolina. a USA Today. So it's not like they came through and I could see them. Like that never happened. Yeah. And before that, I had been in school in Washington, D.C. It was before the Nationals were there, so there was no baseball there either. Um, so I'm watching from afar, but not really that closely. But when I moved back to New York in 1996, I fell back hard with the Mets and I went all in on the Knicks. Same. And, you know, I would walk around my neighborhood listening to the broadcasts, um, and it was so much fun. And the Knicks in the 90s were, they were like, they weren't even, it wasn't even like a movie, it, it, the, they were like epic poetry, they were like an Icelandic saga. I always like to describe the Knicks in the 90s as like a Norse parable because they were always going to lose. Oh, absolutely. Every year you yep. knew they were going to lose, but it was about fighting in the face of Ragnarok. Right. Ragnarok was always coming in the form of Michael Jordan, but it was about how do you stand up and fight to the last moment with everything you have knowing doom was coming. That was the only error of the era, not error. That was the only era of the Knicks where 
it felt good enough just trying hard. Yes. Because yes. I was a diehard fan yes. during that same period. And I, because again, it was hard to get games if you didn't have cable. I didn't have cable at that point, so I didn't have an MSG network. So the only time I could watch the Knicks was when they were on the Sunday game. Uh, because even TNT wasn't a thing yet. So I would listen to games on the radio. Mike Breen and Walt Frazier mm -hmm. doing the radio broadcast. Oh, my goodness. The best. Um, and I listened to the Knicks just like in the car. Uh -huh. And like I, you know, that famous John Starks dunking over Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen. Yeah. Listen to it on the radio. Wow. I didn't see the replay of yeah. that for two days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a big deal. And you were drawn to that team. Yeah. They were amazing. I mean, John Starks is like. That can't be real. Like, John Starks is a guy from a screenplay. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the, the guy who just shoots threes again and again and again and again and again. Even if he's missing all game, he just keeps going. Like, it was, it was so compelling. And then, things started to go bad. Yes. With Patrick Ewing. Yes. Um... But just one thing I want to okay, just add to that. to that. Before we get to that. The thing that that team had that I have not experienced in a long time is the electricity factor. Mm. Where people stop you on the street yeah. to talk to you about it. Yeah. Because I remember um, the night that Pat Riley famously resigned. Mm -hmm. Well, he resigned. I don't know why I had air quotes there. But the night Pat Riley resigned via fax. Yes. And I just remember that I was... With some friends, we had been to a show, and there wasn't going to be time to take the subway back to Penn Station to get home on the last train back to Long Island. So we get in a cab, and we really quickly drops us off at Penn Station. We get out of Penn Station, and as soon as we get out of cab, there are people just standing in front of Penn Station saying, Did you hear? Pat Riley resigned. <laughs> and it was like, we got out of a car, and a dude just on the street came over, opened up the cab door to let us get out to ask, did you hear Pat Riley resign? And we're like, oh my God, what? And like, we'll did you hear the war's over? And we're just talking in a group. Wow, yeah. To the point where we missed the train and yeah, we, end up, yeah. we end up just staying at Penn Station uh, until five in the morning, everybody just talking about like yeah. whoever came by who looked like they might be a sports fan talking about the Knicks. That was an electricity that, that I haven't felt since then. Yeah, yeah. They were they were so watchable. They were so fun. But although have you gone back and tried to rewatch those games? No. They're not as watchable as you remember. <laughs> <laughs> that epic poetry, it, yeah. it more it seems like two very tired heavyweights struggling <laughs> to land punches. Um but the Knicks, I mean, we talk about the Mets as a befuddled front office, but they got nothing on the New York Knicks. And the Knicks, their rap for most of Ewing's career was they never got anyone else to surround him with. Mm -hmm. You know, apologies to Kiki Vandeweghe, but- Charles Smith. You know, like you get one guy- Alan Houston. You don't surround him with, you know, players who can help him not carry the entire load. And they finally are starting to do that in the in the mid to late 90s. But Ewing's slowing down. And if you'll remember, the last two to three years 
of Ewing's career with the Knicks, he was considered more of a problem than an asset. Yes. It was like he's aging, he's, you know, hogging up the middle, he's the captain, so he wants, he's demanding the ball more than he should. Yes. And people turned on him. The fan base turned on him, the media turned on him, and it got ugly. Especially, it got real ugly. It didn't help that during that strike-shortened year, mm-hmm. um, when the 99 season, when I think they only played the 50-game season, where he got hurt, and Latrell Sprewell basically carried the team yeah. to the finals that yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. And then in the, in the I think it was 2000, uh, a month before the season started, they traded him. Yes. And, you know, I, w- I went back and actually reread some of the articles about it this morning. And, and what I'd forgotten was that actually Ewing demanded the trade. Yeah. Because Me too. they basically told him that he was not in their plans anymore. And now we, we've said in the past that the hardest, you know, and, and, and it's a truism that the hardest thing to do in professional sports is manage an aging superstar. And that makes sense. And yes, Ewing was, skills were diminished. And yes, they needed to find a way to gracefully transition the team away from him. And these are all difficult things. Right. And it didn't work out, and they traded him. And that's fine. Like, you have to trade him. It doesn't work out the way That's great. What I can forgive that. What I can't forgive is the way that everyone, and I mean everyone, from the fan base to the papers to anyone who was surrounding the team dumped on him on the way out the door. Right. Character assassination, blaming him for a decade plus of not doing anything. They shit on him as they as he left as if he was a failure. Right. Take Patrick Ewing and take the blame Beltran yeah. and, and multiply it by, by several a million. Yeah. And that was, to me, that was unforgivable. And I was like, if this is how you're going to treat the person who single-handedly kept your team relevant for a decade and a half, I don't want to be a part of this group. Right. And I never watched the Knicks game again. I walked away. It's, first of all, I don't blame you. Um, It's really telling the way the Knicks organization um, to this day handles their legacy Mm -hmm. because they like to carry themselves as we play in the mecca of basketball. The garden has, you know, meaning to it. We are a flagship franchise in the NBA. When the fact of the matter is the Knicks last won a title in 1973. Mm-hmm. The Knicks won their last title 45 years yep. ago. Mm-hmm. The major, the vast majority of NBA fans have never seen the Knicks win a title. No. Um, and now, a couple years ago, I tried. I was like, okay, maybe it's been long enough. Let me, let me, let me give the Knicks a try again. I think it was, you know, there was some excitement about uh, Kristaps Porzingis. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Bazinga, as my <laughs> wife likes to call him. Um, and so I started, I watched a few games and I was like, and then, you know, all this stuff started coming out about, you know, oh, maybe they're going to trade him. Right. And then, you know, what they did or didn't do with Jeremy Lin. And it's like, you know, it's the same crap. It's, it's just the same crap. I'm just not interested. 
the the Knicks have the Wilpon problem, but even worse. Even worse. Which you know, who thought that was possible? Right. Because if you have to choose between an organization that cares about the team but doesn't have the money in the Wilpons, mm-hmm. or James Dolan mm-hmm. and the Dolan family, yeah. who have all the money in the world yes. and um, none of the ability to hire the right people, um, or not, I don't even want to say business acumen, I just mean human being acumen. This is why I am always frightened when fans are like, the Wilpons have to sell the team. Because who's going to buy them? The Dolans? Yeah. Like, is that better? I don't think so. I'm starting to believe this radical idea that billionaires are not our <laughs> friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did a whole pot about that I, earlier this year. I, just, I think it's, it's exactly right. It's You know yes. what? It's really starting to creep up on me yes. that billionaires are not our friends. So then we have to just ask a question. Do we still want to be a part of this? And I guess... What I'm saying is, I still want to be a Mets fan. Yeah. They don't make it easy. (laughs) They really don't. I don't see myself giving the Mets the same treatment I have given to the Jets. Well, I mean, that that asks the question, what would they have to do? I think it's possible. I think, I mean, there there are things. Well, I don't want to say it out loud because I don't want them to go do it. Pretty much. Um, no, there are plenty of things. So, here's one thing that comes to mind for me. And this is sort of a long-time hobby horse for me. I don't really remember if we've talked about this. Um, I think it's reprehensible that there are no women playing Major League Baseball. And there are a lot of reasons why. Mm-hmm. Part of it is a, you know, long-term... Uh, player development issue right? where women are not allowed to play baseball as girls. At a certain point, they get right. shunted. They get into moved softball. into softball. Um, but there is no reason, nobody can convince me that women are not physically capable of playing this game. Baseball is not a strength game. Strength is important, but but this is the people when I talk about this. This is the one thing people always come back with. Well, you know, women aren't as strong as men. Who gives a shit? Right. Like we're talking about a thousand athletes. This is not the broad spectrum of the population. There has to be somebody out here who can do it. Yes, these are like the elites. Yeah. Um, And it always drives me nuts that you know how much baseball pats itself on the back about Jackie Robinson. That happened 70 years ago. There are no women in Major League Baseball, but it's going to happen. Whether or not it's, you know, in the next 10 years or in 30 years, it's going to happen. And we're going to go through that same shit again Yeah. where there's going to be resistance. There are going to be people who are going to uh, uh, go out of their way to make whoever that first woman who plays Major League Baseball make her life a living hell. And if the Mets are the team that are involved in in fighting that, I will walk away. Okay. That's 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 the line in the sand. That's a line in the sand. I hear it. Um, I agree with you in the sense that, hey, if there was player development, we would absolutely see that. Yeah. Um, I'm all for the idea. This is, you know, I, I, I welcome it happening. This. My, my wife, Bronwyn, is a huge tennis fan. 
Yeah. And so I have watched a lot of tennis, kind of as she does. The greatest athlete I have ever seen in my lifetime is Serena Williams. Have you said anybody but Ser- Serena Williams is not only the best tennis player She's just of the her lifetime, athlete. she is the greatest American athlete yes. of the last 30 years. Yes. And anybody who thinks otherwise is just wrong. Yeah. Um, so this has always been sort of a hobby horse of mine that, that um, I cannot wait for the day when Major League Baseball is integrated by gender. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to it. I think yeah. it's going to be great. I've always said that the most passionate um, and knowledgeable baseball fans I know mm-hmm. are women. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, they had to fight their way to get in. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, we're still talking about female sports writers yeah. and female sports bloggers um, as if it's something of an anomaly. We've talked about, uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, there's the, uh, the Daily Mets podcast that Josh right. Lewin does. Uh, yesterday's pod was an interview, included an interview with the only two, no, that's not true, two of the only three uh, women PA announcers. Yeah. Uh, the Mets have one, mm-hmm. and I believe they said both of the uh, PA announcers for the San Francisco Giants are women. Yes. And so I, I was actually in the middle of listening to it on the way up here. I mean, the interesting thing is if you want to go back to, you know, when we were younger, um, there was resistance and there still is resistance to women being umpires. Yeah, totally. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've covered a lot of topics here today. We have. Why don't we, why don't we pull it back to the Mets as we, uh, as we wrap it up? We have three and a half weeks left. We got about, we got about 21 ball games left. So I've got two, two questions for you okay. at this point. Okay. Well, one is a question and one is more of a, a statement. So the statement is, is one thing we have to look forward to for the rest of the wedding is we'll be, uh, the Mets will be hosting the Atlanta Braves in a couple of weeks. Yep. Did you see who the Atlanta Braves traded for? I did not. The Atlanta Braves acquired our old friend, Lucas Duda. <gasps> Wait, when did this happen? This I completely right before, missed this. This happened right before the the, the waiver trade deadline. The oh, trade I deadline. had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, so we'll be seeing Lucas. We'll be seeing the dude uh, in a couple of weeks. And that'll be nice. That'll be nice. I was very excited. A couple of weeks ago, the Royals were playing the Blue Jays, uh-huh. which meant Curtis Granderson and Lucas Duda were reunited. And that leads me to my next, my, my question, which is last year... You'll recall, we um, we uh, we declared an Utley waiver, in which because the Dodgers acquired Curtis Granderson, that we were permitting Mets fans to follow to support the Dodgers mm-hmm. in the playoffs, even though they had that guy on yeah. the roster. Well, <clears throat> Curtis Granderson is now a Milwaukee Brewer. I know that. Are we f- throwing in with the Brewers for the postseason? Well, is this the Grandy Rule Part Two. I think that this is, there's a two-part answer. Okay. One is because of Curtis Granderson, um, I will be keeping a close eye mm-hmm. on the on the Brewers. Um, I will not afford that same um, line of thinking and fandom to the Atlanta Braves. Too, there's too much there. Too much. Too, too much. much there. I got, I got no yeah. problem with the good people in Milwaukee. Yeah. 
It's too much. Well, I mean, like, Lucas Dude is nice and fun, and yeah, I, I wish him well, but he's not Curtis Granderson. Like, of course not. Yeah. Um, but you know what? You want to see the players who you're rooted yeah. for succeed, and yes. then there's Daniel Murphy. <laughs> oh, Murphy. Um, I will say that here's what I'm looking for from the Mets over the last couple, uh, couple of weeks of the season. You know what would make me feel good? If the Mets get to 75 wins. Sure. That means they've got to go about, um, depending on how many games they have left, I think that means they've got to go 12 and 10 mm. the rest of the way. They're at 63 yeah. wins right now. 75 wins feels like, hey, you were a couple of breaks away from being 500. Yeah, pretty much. Um, pretty much. Yeah. We just, I just want them to get Jake to Um <laughs> And hopefully get David Wright back on the field for a couple yeah. of games. I think that, um, and just to play more fun baseball. That's been that's been a joy. There's a thing that happens every year, regardless of how the Mets are playing, when there's no postseason in play, where I tune into the last couple of games with sort of a wistfulness. Yeah. Like it's coming to an end. The leaves are turning. Yeah. And I'm gonna do that for the next couple of weeks. So I think we've got one more pod in us for this season. Yeah. So I think next uh, in two weeks we'll we'll regroup and I guess we'll do a, a, a we did this last year. And you know, actually, I was thinking about this earlier. Like this season has been disappointing, but man, the end of this season is not nearly as bad as the end of last season. The end of last season last, felt like, oh, oh man, this is a grind. Much. Yeah. This at least feels yeah. like okay. We're looking at what we have for next year. Yeah. Like I said, it's been fun watching the Mets for the last couple of weeks. So next time, uh, for for our final part of the season, why don't we why don't we plan on doing a, you know, looking forward to twenty nineteen? What are the things that we've learned? Uh, I think we've learned a lot, even in this bad kind of back half of the season. Uh, I think I'm gonna, you know me, I sometimes choose to be positive, but uh, I think some foundations have been laid. It's been a rough year. (laughs) But, well, let's talk about that next time. Sounds good. Jay, thank you again for doing this. And thank you. And until that next time... We will see you at at the the baseball baseball movies. movies.